This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Now, I'm going to talk about blasphemy because for a number of years now, but particularly since the beginning of this year, I've become interested more and more uh, in this phenomenon, the significance of, of blasphemy uh, both as a metaphor for a range of problems about morality, about criticism, about politics and so on, which are entangled together, but also as a signal, uh, a sign of a certain kind of civilization, a pre-modern civilization. And uh, particularly the recent uh, Danish cartoons affair with which I'm sure all of you are, are quite familiar, uh, made me decide to, to try and, and write about this subject for tonight. And it's literally uh, an attempt at, at thinking uh, as I go along. Now, the recent affair of the Danish cartoons has attracted much international media attention. A decade and a half after the Rushdie affair, the old religious denunciation of blasphemy had reared its head again among Muslims in Europe and beyond. Also, we were told. There were angry protests and some violence on one side, much angry comment and expressions of contempt on the other. The affair was discussed largely in the context of the problem of integrating Muslim immigrants into Europe and related to the global menace of Islamists. The prolonged and violent demonstrations against the Danish cartoons, wrote George Packer, New Yorker staff writer, were a staged attempt by Islamists to intimidate their enemies in their own countries and in the West. Coming after the attack on the World Trade Center and the London bombings, the cartoon affair was made to fit neatly into a wider discourse by many commentators. Not all. The West's war on terror, a conflict that many see as part of an intrinsic hostility between two civilizations, Islam and the West. A different view came from the London Guardian columnist Gary Young, writing at the height of the cartoon affair, which contained the following statement. In January 2002, he wrote, the New Statesman, which is a British political weekly, published a front page displaying a shimmering golden star of David, impaling a Union flag with the words, a kosher conspiracy? The cover was widely and rightly condemned as anti-Semitic. It's not difficult to see why. It played into the vile stereotypes, I'm still quoting, into the vile stereotypes of money-grubbing Jewish cabals out to undermine the country they live in. Some put it down to a lapse of editorial judgment, but many saw it not as an aberration, but part of a trend. One more broadside 
in an attack on Jews from the liberal left. A group calling itself Action Against Antisemitism marched into the statesman's offices demanding a printed apology. One eventually followed. The then editor later confessed that he had not appreciated what he called the historic sensitivities of Britain's Jews. I do not remember, Young goes on, talk of a clash of civilizations in which Jewish values were inconsistent with the Western traditions of freedom or democracy. Nor do I recall editors across Europe rushing to reprint the cover in solidarity. Quite why the Muslim response to 12 cartoons printed in Denmark last September should be treated differently is illuminating. There seems to be almost universal agreement that these cartoons are offensive. There should also, he says, be universal agreement that the paper has a right to publish them. But the right to freedom of speech, he says, equates to neither an obligation to offend nor a duty to be insensitive. There is no contradiction between supporting someone's right to do something and condemning them for doing it. If our commitment to free speech is important, our belief in anti-racism, he writes, should be no less so. These cartoons spoke not to historic sensitivities, but modern ones. Now, I find myself in agreement with Young here. And like him, I find the frequent declarations of Western moral superiority in the matter of the cartoons a little difficult to understand. However, this account doesn't capture all that can be said about blasphemy. And it is the concept of blasphemy that I want to talk about tonight from an anthropological perspective. Anthropology, as you know, is a discipline that seeks to understand foreign cultures, other modes of reasoning, and blasphemy apparently rests on a mode of reasoning alien to modern thought. But it is rarely appreciated that anthropology includes a readiness to distance oneself conceptually from one's own culture in an effort to see how strange, contradictory, and even disturbing it can be. Now, many Euro-Americans uh, commented uh, in the media on the Danish cartoons affair and represented it as one more piece of evidence that the West and Islam are based on mutually incompatible values. Democracy, secularism, liberty, and reason on the one side, and on the other, the many opposites, tyranny, religion, slavery, and unreason. So I begin with a brief discussion of the civilizational difference that blasphemy supposedly signals. Now, it should be borne in mind that in matters of law and philosophy, of administrative institutions and social manners, as well as of religion, both the Middle East and Europe have roots in the same ancient world of the Mediterranean. One can certainly point to differences between what came to be called Europe and the Middle East, but reason and unreason are not ways to sum up 
or explain those differences, if only because no single principle of reasoning underlies every aspect of cultural life. Now take, for example, the recent attempts, many attempts among Euro-American authors to trace democracy and political equality to the Christian doctrine of the universal dignity of man. As though here was an indisputable essence of Western civilization. Francis Fukuyama is a well-known member of this school. Significantly, in medieval Latin, as many of you I'm sure know, dignitas referred to the privilege and distinction of high office, not to political equality. Christianity does have a notion of universal spiritual worth, as for that matter does Islam, but that has been compatible with great social and political inequality, historically. However that may be, most conventional histories of political ideas derive the concept and practice of modern democracy not from Christianity, but from classical Greece. Pre-Christian Athens certainly had a restricted concept of equal citizenship and rudimentary democratic practices. But it had no notion of the universal dignity of man. This suggests, it seems to me, that modern secular democracy, which gradually, through struggle, eliminated many inequalities in European Christendom, does not depend on the value that Fukuyama and many other contemporary ideologists make so much of. What electoral democracy does depend on, however, is the substitutability of the individual by any other individual. Each voter counts as one, if they do vote, counts as one and no more than one in the arithmetic of electoral politics. And substitutability, a principle fundamental to representative democracy, seems to strike at the root of individual dignity. There are many contradictions, I need hardly remind you, in the historical march to democracy, as well as within democracy itself. The old claim that Christian doctrine has been receptive to democracy because in Christendom, unlike Islam, church and state began as separate entities is, I think, misleading. The fact is that the Byzantine church-state was the ground on which central Christian doctrines were formulated and fought over. Even in the Middle Ages and well beyond, the separation between religious and political authority was not complete, and everyone knows that. The argument that Christianity is uniquely hospitable to democracy and secular criticism is an informal fallacy, in my view, based on the fact that modern Christian doctrine has recently been adapted to secular liberal arrangements. Now, my interest here, I should remind you, is not in why democracy has failed to appear in the Middle East, a subject which has exercised very many people, but in what, given the present political climate, is to be understood by the notion of a distinctive European civilization in conflict with another called Islamic civilization in matters of fundamental value, such as public criticism and free speech. What kind of history are we directed to? All histories are selective, of course, but what they leave out and how they interpret what they select 
are surely more interesting than the mere fact of selection. Something that is left out is the rich history of mutual borrowings as well as continuous interaction among Christians, Jews, and Muslims on both sides of the Mediterranean. By this omission, the very identity of a people as European or Islamic is made to depend on the definition of a selective civilizational heritage of which most of the people who are said to belong to it are in fact almost completely ignorant. A heritage of art, literature, historiography, philosophy, science and engineering with which even individual members of the elite, the civilization's guardians, are surely only partly familiar. This notion not only legitimizes the internal cultural inequality of those embraced by the civilization, but also defines their fundamental difference from other peoples. In other words, it's not simply that a heritage is inevitably selective, it is that a people is essentially defined by the civilization that is their heritage. And yet, sociologically, the people who are said to belong to a given civilization are highly differentiated by class, religious doctrine, language, and region, and they have often been riven by conflicts, sometimes in alliance with members of alien civilizations, so-called. What else are we invited to attend to and what to ignore by people who speak about civilizations in opposition to one another. When Europeans speak of Christianity as the essential core of Western civilization, I doubt that most of them have in mind the Orthodox churches of Eastern Europe or the ancient Christian congregations that have always been integral to Muslim-majority countries. Indeed, until the Middle Ages, Christians formed a majority in the Islamic empire, a numerical advantage they lost only gradually over subsequent centuries. Central doctrines of Christianity, the concept of the Trinity, theories of atonement and so on, as well as major institutions such as monasticism, first emerged in the Middle East to be later taken up and developed in Latin Christendom. Nicaea, where the creed was formulated, was after all a town in Asia Minor. This leaves it unclear as to whether talk about Christianity as the midwife of modern European civilization is to be understood as a theological thesis or a socio-political one or as some combination of the two. I'm not saying that there are no significant differences between political economic formations and cultural traditions in Northwestern Europe and in the Middle East but the formations are not and never have been completely self-contained. They are not unchanging, and they do not coincide with geographical regions. Besides, there's always been an intermingling between European and Middle Eastern populations through the centuries. Albeit until very recently, this has occurred not in Europe, but in North Africa and the Middle East. At least since the 18th century, European Christians have come to the Muslim world as entrepreneurs and adventurers, soldiers and missionaries, rulers and colonial settlers. And today, many Muslims have come to live in Euro-America and to work in various sectors of its national economies. I don't argue, as many have done, that there is therefore no such thing as the West. There is, in my view, the West, 
but I think it's best regarded neither as a geographical place nor as a self-contained civilization, but as a hegemonic project, global in scope. At any rate, what I say is that simple binaries won't do to sum up the complex engagements between peoples in these uh, two parts of the world uh, into distinctive civilizations. Now, how does the claim of conflicting civilization values, and especially the value of free speech as opposed to speech that is constrained, fit into what I've been saying? More precisely, since that is my interest for tonight, how does the charge of blasphemy made publicly in secular European countries relate to the right to criticize publicly? The one is an archaic religious transgression, the other a principle essential to modern democratic debate. But when one looks beyond this opposition of principles to examine the emotional structure of blasphemy, one finds that blasphemy is not quite so alien to modern Western society. No doubt many who supported the publication of the cartoons or who republished them subsequently with expressions of defiance were moved by a passionate commitment to the principle of free speech, just as others took delight in the distress and anger they knew would be evoked among a disliked and vulnerable minority. The interesting question is how much the so-called blasphemers wanted their intervention to be taken as blasphemy and why. In the public rhetoric of many of these people, the category of blasphemy was clearly as essential as it was to protesting Muslims, although, of course, it rested on a different range of emotions. There's nothing new in pointing out that structures of emotion constrain the communication of critical discourse, including the giving and taking of provocation. But recognition of this fact should, I think, encourage us to go beyond the question of formal civilizational principles and beyond the simple notion of emotion as the source of irrationality. We need to understand, I think, how emotions invest people's sense of sacredness and danger. So far, I've been arguing against the view that there are two civilizations, one holding free speech to be sacred and the other restricting it in the name of religion. I want to say a few words on the question of free speech in the context of academia before turning to the idea of blasphemy directly. If it's suggested that in particular circumstances public speech ought to be restrained even when the law doesn't require it, why should there be complaints about interference with academic freedom? Don't universities have responsibilities towards the society in which they live and which supports them? Part of the answer to this has, of course, to do with the history of the modern university. It's well known that professionalization accompanied the secularization of Western research universities from the last quarter of the 19th century onwards. When driven by professional considerations, scientific research required institutional spaces where the investigation of nature could be pursued without external constraints. The social sciences, modeling themselves on the natural sciences, saw themselves undertaking specialized research like the natural scientist and so claimed autonomy in their use of so-called scientific method as well as in their object of study. 
The humanities that emerged out of rhetoric and philosophy assumed the mission of educating the moral sensibilities of students. In a culture that values usefulness highly, the claim of the humanities to autonomous professional research was advanced as vigorously as that of the natural and social scientists. This history of university secularization is very well known, although parts of it are subject to conflicting interpretation. My reason for gesturing at it here is simply to stress the practical institutional conditions on which the idea of academic freedom rests, to emphasize that academic freedom developed not out of liberty as a civilizational value, but out of the effort to protect professional research in which the exercise of internal regulation has been as important as the limitation of outside interference, the outside being defined by shifting boundary that is subject to political powers and ambitions. The distinguished historian John Somerville has recently complained that intellectual life in the university is already constrained, and this is not from external interference, but from within, from the secular character of its institutional culture. The university needs to be freed from the secularist consensus, he thinks, that has been imposed on it for over a century. Somerville believes that its moral and political relevance, as well as its intellectual vitality, require the breaking of that consensus and a recognition of how the Christian religion has shaped Western identity and Western values. For this reason, he thinks that the study of the, Western, of the Christian basis of Western civilization should be made a requirement in universities so that, as he puts it, we can understand ourselves. The unquestioned assumptions here, of course, are that the self to be understood is at once singular and collective, that it is complete in its what he calls Jewish and Christian heritage. For Somerville, there is therefore a double coercion at work, one external, the hostility of Islamic civilization, and one internal, the university culture of secularism. Like so many self-styled anti-relativists today, Somerville believes, wrongly in my view, that it's impossible to distinguish between truth and falsehood, between kindness and cruelty, unless one concedes the absolute supremacy of one civilization, Christian, Western, modern, whatever, and of one reason, what he calls the Greek logos, over all others. The end of the Cold War, Somerville writes, has made us more aware of the religious divisions of the world that are strongly continuing into our third millennium. There's good reason for thinking that much of the world's conflict is religious, although academics strenuously protested Samuel Huntington's effort to point this out. The conflict Somerville has in mind, however, and most people who talk about this in these terms, uh, isn't about uh, conflict between evangelicals and secular liberals within the United States over such issues as tax-supported religion, abortion, gay rights, life support systems, brain death, and the teaching of intelligent design in schools. Somerville's ingenuous references to Islamic violence skirts around the Christian fundamentalist enthusiasm for war, not merely for Armageddon in a mythic future, but for real wars in the contemporary Middle East that have devastated whole societies. Somerville is greatly exercised by the need to make universities relevant to the world in which we live 
by requiring them to instill a strong sense of civilizational identity in students, of standards of thought and behavior that are sacrosanct. That, in his view, would give universities greater freedom. But making such standards sacrosanct is, of course, also making them subject to being blasphemed. There may be something, nevertheless, in what Somerville is saying, I think. I can see that opening up narrow secularist assumptions to the importance of religious language, making it possible to think secular matters in theological language independent of belief, could be intellectually liberating. However, requiring not only that Christianity be taken as one element in a complicated genealogy of our present, but that it be made the basis of something called our identity is, quite apart from other objections, to expect more from the three or four years of university life than I think they can deliver. And it certainly uh, would not make for greater academic freedom. What academics I know mean when they speak of academic freedom is therefore simply a space of immunity in which to teach and research in the humanities free from interference by the state and by private money. That is to say, free to say what one has to say without fear that it will provoke outrage and punishment. But such autonomy is difficult, if not impossible, to secure in a capitalist society that also wants to be an exclusive civilization whose guardians, both within academia and outside it, believe that it is under serious threat from a non-Western tradition. Of course, there is no place for blasphemy as a religious crime in a liberal society. But is there a place for blasphemy as a distinctive mode of understanding and addressing a world in which verbal and physical violence are, in any case, constitutive. Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, is a distinguished theologian, in many ways a liberal, whose writings have often provoked thought, uh, have often proved thought-provoking for non-Christians such as myself. Recently, something he said helped me to understand something more about the conceptual and emotional structure of blasphemy. A year after the London bombings by young Muslim, uh, British Muslims in protest against the war in Iraq, Williams delivered a sermon in uh, York. People of faith, he declared, have had to try and come to terms with the horrible fact that there are those who want to serve their God and their idea of justice by organized slaughter and suicide. They want to display strength, they want to secure their vision by force, and to clothe suicide with the spiritual power of martyrdom. This represents, he writes, or rather he spoke, and this is the, the record of his uh, sermon, this represents a condition of spiritual weakness that is both pitiable and terrifying. For the person who resorts to random killing in order to promote the honor of God or the supposed support or the supposed cause of justice 
it is clear that God is not to be trusted. God is too weak to look after his own honor. And we are the strong ones who must step in to help him. Such, he says, is the underlying blasphemy at work. Now, in Williams's eyes, suicide bombers were not simply misguided. They were blasphemers. And they were blasphemers because their action implied they believed that God was dependent on them. Since the 17th century, the Christian history of blasphemy, as we know, has been closely connected to trials for libel, both seditious libel and blasphemous libel, and for treason, and therefore the idea of defending a person's honorable state. In fact, promoting the honor of God is never a reason given by Muslim suicide bombers. Unlike the Christian concept of the Godhead, who is a person, Muslims insist that God is not a person, and therefore honor or dishonor cannot apply to him. Justice, however, is often given as a reason, and although these young men might have been misguided in believing that their cause was just, and although they used cruel means in promoting it, that doesn't make the action blasphemous according to the criteria used. Nevertheless, from Williams's perspective, it is blasphemy, a horrific violation of founding truths. He reasons that if the blasphemer's belief were really true, it would mean that all we had to hold on to was our own power, the fantasy of being in total control that fuels every kind of pathological violence, domestic or public. Now, Williams's charge of blasphemy here takes the form of a secular critique embedded in theological language. Blasphemy is in the violence based of, on delusions of absolute control. Here, our attention might have been directed at the resort to total war as an instrument for rearranging the world, at the use of continual global violence to secure continuous peace, but Williams veers away from that consideration. The essential shock effect of suicide bombing, he lets us understand, is due not merely to its destruction of human life, that is the stuff of war, after all, or to its being a crime of murder, that is common enough in peace, but to its status as a performative. Suicide bombing is blasphemous, not because it is violent, but because it says something about the sacred. And what it says is a travesty. It pretends, as Williams puts it, and I quote, to clothe suicide with the spiritual power of martyrdom. The sense of moral outrage that sees this act as blasphemy is nurtured by a theology that has its own mode of decipherment, its own disavowals, its own view of the relationship of death to truth. The French historian Alain Cabantou once noted that when Jesus claimed for himself a divine nature, it was condemned as blasphemy. And that that blasphemy led to his death, and the death was followed by resurrection. In this one respect, he writes, blasphemy founded Christianity. 
However, Kaban II does not attend to the fact that the blasphemy was not perceived as such by believers. From a Christian point of view, the charge of blasphemy was an expression of disbelief in the saving truth. And although that belief eventually led to Christ's crucifixion, his death was actually part of a divine plan. Christ wanted his unbelieving listeners to take what he said as blasphemy because crucifixion was essential to the project of human redemption. His claim to divinity was, after all, outrageous. An act either of extreme hubris or of unfathomable love. The emotions with which blasphemy is invested here do not in themselves signify irrationality, is what I'm saying, but are integral to the act of blasphemy itself. So strictly speaking, what founded Christianity was not blasphemy but sacrifice, an act of martyrdom that was for believers the door to eternal life, an act to which blasphemy was nevertheless essential. Why does the Christian today recognize blasphemy in the suicide bomber's performative? Unlike cases of blasphemy that carried the ultimate punishment, death here did not follow accusation but preceded it. And in itself, the death did not convey the truth of life eternal, it simply expressed the untruth of bodily mortality. In the Christian world, suicide bombing may be seen as a caricature of the crucifixion. The bomber brings death to other human beings by suicide. He does not get others to kill him, but kills himself. And he promises immortality not to all believers, but to an abstract community. In this case, at least, for Williams to call something blasphemy is to defend a founding truth, which suggests that unless there is a founding truth, God, nature, eternity, there is no blasphemy. There is a reverse to this, of course, to converse. It's worth noting, incidentally, that most Arabic speakers in these situations rarely employ the word tajdif, that is usually glossed in English as blasphemy, having the particular sense of scoffing at God's bounty. The word uh, is in fact used quite often by Christian Arabs, but also by Muslims, uh, by Christian Arabs to identify what in European religious history is called blasphemy. As an accusation against non-Muslim journalists in the present case, the, the Danish uh, cartoons, the concept of tajdif is therefore not quite appropriate. So when Yusuf al-Qaradawi, member of the World Council of Muslim Scholars, makes a statement about the Danish cartoons affair, he doesn't use that word. He uses the word isa'a, which has a range of secular meanings, including insult, harm, and offense. For example, well, I don't need to go into that because we're getting on. Um, anyway, there is, there is quite a, a, a rich vocabulary of uh, expressions both of, of, uh, uh, of condemnation and of, of uh, um, invective uh, as well as of, of the relationship between words and truth in, in Islam. And um, in this case the casting of aspersions on the prophet was equivalent to maligning a figure, which was why he used that particular word, that stands as the emotional and moral ideal someone 
on whom pious Muslims model themselves. This doesn't mean, as, as people have, uh, some people have recently again asserted, that there's no reasoned criticism and debate in the learned tradition of Islam. On the contrary, we can talk about this tomorrow, on the contrary, as uh, argument as well as its limits have always been critical in the traditions of Islamic theology and law. And I talk about traditions rather than individuals who may or may not be uh, open to reasoned argument as anywhere, including the academia. But all this, you might say, has nothing to do with the problem of free speech. Critics do not need to show that outraged Muslims were using a particular word, the word tashdif, in order to talk about their ac making accusations of blasphemy in this affair. We are dealing not simply with words, but with concepts. When an expression is critical of something that's considered sacred, a sacred, untouchable truth, a taboo, as it's also known, and is condemned for daring to be critical of it, then that is an instance of the charge of blasphemy, whatever word the people themselves may or may not use. Just as it doesn't matter, so it's said, when precise, what precise words Muslims used in condemning the critical cartoons, so it doesn't matter that Muslims were offended, because the principle of free speech is more important than the hurt its exercise may cause individuals. It was even a good thing, so some have said, that pious Muslims were hurt because being made extremely uncomfortable by criticism may induce people to re-examine their beliefs, a process vital both to democratic debate and to ethical decision-making. This argument, in contrast to the first, focuses on the consequence of free speech rather than on its legitimacy. It sees the subversion of questionable beliefs as an obligation of secular criticism that is directed at the moral education of recipients. But precisely because there is an ethical dimension to the right of free speech, it's insisted that there must always be certain limits, like the ones that I started off with talking about in Britain. Speech that goes against the fundamental principles of universal ethics that strikes at the roots of the idea of humanity should, of course, be legally forbidden, or at the very least, publicly deplored and discouraged. Then, and only then, in those circumstances, should speech be suppressed. Now, there's a point that I want to present here briefly as a matter of, for, for investigation into the concept of morality that's being deployed in discourses about blasphemy and the idea of criticism associated with it. The ethical subject who models herself on the prophet is expected to do so by emulating his personal virtues. The image of the prophet described, describes her moral aspirations. In this process of moral education, her society measures the adequacy of her moral status by a public standard provided in the tradition. She's criticized in the measure to which she fails to embody its virtues. And yet, precisely because it is publicly accessible, the moral standard can itself be directly criticized, the target being either the prophet himself or the interpretation of his paradigmatic status. For the idealized secular critic, which I want to contrast with here sketchily, however, moral subjectivity consists in developing her moral sub, uh, sensibilities through a private reading of literature. 
Although the criteria for reading may be taught through a public discipline, the subject is expected to negotiate her reading individually. From this latter perspective, any and every text is grist to the mill by which autonomous standards are constructed and reconstructed. It's for this reason that the cultivation of virtues anchored in a fixed public paradigm appears an unnecessary restriction to the secular subject's self-construction through a critical engagement with an unlimited body of texts. And yet, it may be suggested that the secular subject is not less restricted than the other, but articulates a different way of being in the world. Not less restricted, because in that world, the seemingly unlimited production and consumption of signs are not free, but strictly dictated by market forces to which even private imagination in a capitalist society must adapt. Let me elaborate a little by further comments on the idea of criticism that uh, relate to what seem to me contrasting forms of subjectivity. The one thinking typically through blasphemy, the other only through secular criticism. In a much-cited essay entitled Secular Criticism, Edward Said once wrote that criticism is always situated, it is skeptical, secular, reflectively open to its own failings. And to this, I would add only two things. First, that the subversive form of criticism is often freer when confronting persons and objects that the society concerned doesn't value very much. And second, that criticism's secular character can only relate to the fact of its being in the world and not to an unquestioned assumption of what the world really is. I'm afraid I'm going to have to skip here because it's uh, taking me slightly longer. In the matter of the Danish cartoons, it was said that an act of legitimate criticism was being presented in threatening religious terms. Blasphemy was charged because a taboo had been broken. Euro-American experts on Islam solemnly told us that visual representations of the prophet were forbidden in that religion. But some secularists approached the matter differently. Your taboo, not mine, declared Andrew Sullivan defiantly in a Time magazine article on the cartoon affair, the Danish cartoon affair implying thereby a hostile confrontation of sacralities and even civilizations, as he proceeded to uh, show. What are we to understand by the frequent use of the term taboo in the conflict over the Danish cartoons and the whole way in which blasphemy was conceived? To begin with, it obviously clearly underlines the irrationality of what is defended and the rationality of critiquing it. An impressive study on the topic is the posthumously published book entitled Taboo by the anthropologist Franz Steiner, which inspired Mary Douglas's much more widely known Purity and Danger, which I'm sure many of you know. In it, Steiner provides a fascinating genealogy of the reception and use of this term, noting that the word taboo was first encountered by European mariners in Polynesia in the latter part of the 18th century, 
where it signified the limits set by chiefly power, and it was subsequently misunderstood by many post-Enlightenment writers. The problem of taboo, Steiner argues, was a Victorian invention. He gives two reasons for its extraordinary prominence in 19th century European thought and society. On the one hand, secularization of modern religion, and on the other, the multiplication of taboos in Victorian social life. The increasing application of reason, he thinks, to much of what had previously been regarded as belonging to religion, still left certain recalcitrant areas, attitudes, behaviors, and so on, that appeared irrational, virtually, by definition. In fact, so Steiner claimed, this irrationality was the product of the wider processes that had deprived these attitudes and behaviors of the frame that had originally given them their sense. It was in this context, suggests Steiner, that the category taboo acquired an indispensable ideological function for modern secular subjects as an irrational fear of transgression. Taboo could now explain the prohibitions of pre-modern religion, including, of course, blasphemy itself. Though he doesn't directly deal with blasphemy. In addition to this theoretical analysis, Steiner advances a historical account that he thinks illuminates the Victorian obsession with taboo. The 19th century witnessed a dynamic industrializing society in which new groups and classes sought to establish and defend new lines of demarcation and to suppress even the memory of old ways of life. The rapid changes in society continuously generated elaborate tactics of suppression and of invention. The changes incited some people to transgress the new but inevitably temporary demarcations by which attempts were made, more often than not unsuccessfully, to fix, generalize, and protect cultural values. If Steiner's account has any validity for late 19th century Europe, and I believe it does, then it must apply also at the turn of the 20th century to Europe undergoing, undergoing even more rapid and more bewildering changes, in large part as a consequence of immigration. The remarkable transformation in European street culture, music, dress, and language is not a reproduction of stereotypical Islamic or Western civilization. And yet, it is this urban culture developed largely by youth descended from immigrant parents that produces perhaps the greatest anxiety among Europe's aging population. The truculent replies of these youths to the police, their insubordination in insisting on wearing headscarves at school and so on, are harder for many non-Muslim Europeans to countenance than the conventional pieties of their parents or even the rhetoric of radical Islamic preachers. And their riots are more disturbing than the violence of white Europeans. When Sullivan speaks of taboo, he's not referring directly to anything in the newer urban freedom of expression, but to a notion of civilization with clear-cut boundaries that are now endangered, a notion that allows him and other Europeans like him to identify what they call the problem of the half-assimilated or of the in-betweens, which gives, of course, two sides already 
fixed sites. What they see and are fearful of, I think, is precisely the breaking of old European taboos, cultural limits, that creates new aesthetic experiences and social identities. Now, migrants usually carry their limits, and that is their emotional attachments, with them. In a globally mediatized world, the legal definition of national belonging doesn't operate in a vacuum. All nationals, not only migrants, find themselves with complex likes and dislikes of other peoples, with fears of harm from some and fears for the safety of others outside, as it were, the nation. Emotions that transcend formal rights and duties of citizenship within the nation. Partisans of the idea of civilizational clash see these emotional complexities only in certain immigrants and their offspring, rarely in themselves, and they regard them as evidence that national loyalties are being violated, violations that are reduced to the performance of blasphemy. Today, these emotions spill out from an official discourse of the war on terror, in which entire populations are represented as a source of global danger. The category of taboo applied to the behavior of Muslim immigrants in Europe serves paradoxically at once to confirm and deny a difference. Angry Muslim responses to the publication of the cartoons are seen as attempting to reintroduce the category of blasphemy, while European critics see themselves repudiating it, because for them there is no essential difference between secular criticism and what Muslim immigrants superstitiously call blasphemy. They regard the attempt to use the language of blasphemy as evidence of a taboo-obsessed, punitive mentality, one that defines for them the difference between the fanatical unreason of Islam and the open reason of European civilization. Let me try to bring th these reflections to some kind of a close. It's not difficult to see that in the secular world, where religious sentiments take the form of private sensibilities, the intrusive language of blasphemy, profanity, and sacrilege is regarded as a constraint on the liberty of expression, on the construction of one's own subjectivity, on the right to be a free moral agent. The very act of breaking taboos to create something new and valued is essential to one's human entitlement, or so we are told. I have suggested a more complicated picture in which blasphemy should be seen as occupying a highly ambiguous place. Modern societies do have legal constraints on free communication that have nothing to do with universal ethics. For example, laws of copyright, patent and trademark and laws protecting commercial secrets, quite apart from state secrets and so on, all prohibit in differing degree the free circulation of expressions and ideas. Are property rights in a work of art violated if it's publicly reproduced in a distorted form by someone other than the original author with the aim of elaborating or criticizing it? And if they are violated, then how does this differ from blasphemy? My point is not, I want to repeat, my point is not that there is no difference, of course, but that there are legal limits in liberal democratic societies to what may be communicated freely in public, and that breaching these legal limits carries severe penalties. 
And if it seems obvious that in a capitalist society, property is more important than religion, this is only because both religion and property have changed their nature and function over the centuries in interesting ways. There are other laws that prohibit free expression in public and that appear at first sight to belong to a different domain altogether. For example, indecency laws and laws relating to child pornography, prohibited even in cyberspace. The first set of laws which I was talking about, you might say, has to do with the workings of a market economy and therefore with property and the second merely with sexual propriety. But although it is the laws relating to the latter, that is the sexual laws, whose infringement evokes the greatest passion, both sets of constraint are clues to the liberal secular ideal of the human, the proper subject of all freedoms and rights. Both sets of limits articulate different ways in which property and its protection define the person. In a secular society, these laws make it possible to demarcate and defend oneself in terms of what one owns, including, above all, one's body. Thus, our conceptions of infringing on another's body and of exploiting it are matters of central concern to laws regulating sexual conduct. But they also relate to slavery, the ultimate negation of freedom, for one cannot transfer ownership of one's body to another person or acquire property rights in another's. There are, in fact, several kinds of subject whose freedom is valued in liberal democratic society, political, economic, ethical, all of which are rooted in the sole possession of the body by the self. There are some exceptions to this, like suicide and so on, but I won't talk about this. And that suicide uh, exception really comes pretty close to blasphemy as well, I think, in our modern society. As a citizen, the subject, however, uh, participates in the electoral process and has the right to express herself freely in public debate. As an economic individual, the subject is free to earn, spend and acquire whatever she chooses and to protect her property legally. As a transcendental subject, the Kantian ethical actor is defined by her conscience and is thereby, therefore always morally self-governing. The irony is, as we know, that the liberty of each valued subject position is actually constrained by the liberty of the other two, as defined and regulated by the modern pastoral state and the economy. Liberty is always plural, always conditional. It always strikes against other liberties. To make claims about the absolute freedom to exercise this or that right in Western civilization is to deceive oneself or to seek to deceive others. Part of the challenge of the humanities in the universities, as I see it, of an interdisciplinary anthropology, if you like, is to explore the fissures and contradictions between and within different kinds of subject in the modern world. Instead of reinvoking a confrontation between two cultures, one that attacks through the idea of blasphemy and another that defends through the practice of secular criticism, one that is free and another that is not, Exploring such a terrain from various directions and engaging in exchange within and beyond the academy, even if that leads to unexpectedly disturbing 
questions will surely produce greater illumination than the crafting of civilizational enmities in the aid of global imperialism. If that is, we have a planet fit, fit for human habitation by the next century. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.